What a shocking change of mood this scherzo movement brings in the wake of part one. Gone are its angst-riddled emotions, gone the striving and hoping for fulfillment that are but for one glorious moment of prophetic vision dashed by torrents of raging fury. Having confronted the negative, destructive side of the human spirit, we must now face the senseless whirl of modern life. By juxtaposing and contrapuntally interweaving two related but disparate dance rhythms, a countrified Lendler and a citified waltz, Mahler contrasts the simplicity and innocence of rustic life with the complexity and sophistication of cosmopolitan living in order to mock common human foibles. This scherzo is the most strikingly Austrian of all the movements, using not only these two popular dances, but other Alpine music as well, such as a yodel-like figure that recalls some of the Wunderhorn songs. The dance themes become so entangled in each other during the movement that it is sometimes difficult to distinguish between them. Neville Cardis characterizes this movement as Waltz Rapes Lindler, indicating the outcome of their confrontation. During the course of the movement, the rustic Lendler is challenged by a sophisticated, if rather brutish, waltz that tries to undermine it. The Lendler seems constantly under siege by the waltz, the latter finally besting its country cousin, just as urbanity often destroys the innocence and simplicity of nature. Although originally from the country, Mahler became keenly aware of the negative aspects of city life when a young student in Vienna yet he equivocated between longing for natural surroundings of the country and wishing to become part of Viennese society. Although the critical implications of this movement seem clear, Mahler had no intention of stirring up trouble by alluding to them. Instead, he tried to make light of the movement's meaning. He said, There is nothing romantic or mystical about it. It is simply the expression of incredible energy. It is a human being in the full flight of day, in the prime of life. But the music is much subtler and more thought-provoking than Mahler was evidently willing to admit for public consumption. Donald Mitchell views the nature of the Wall subject in Part 2 as an indication of lost innocence. Derek Cook contrasts this movement with the nihilism of Part 1 and refers to it as a dance of life in opposition to the dance of death that he sees as the subject of the scherzo from the Second Symphony. In comparing these two scherzos, it should be noticed that both contain material that will reappear in the finale of their respective symphonies. In the case of the fifth scherzo, certain rhythmic elements. In that of the second scherzo, an entire episode. In the light-hearted, uninhibited romp, that is the middle movement, Mahler creates a kaleidoscope of thematic and motivic material, so intricately woven together that they can make your head spin. Dance rhythms are integrated and interrelated within a highly complex contrapuntal network. Fugal elements, syncopated rhythms, barrel organ figuration, and thematic fragmentation keep the music energized. Folk-like dance rhythms are fused with sophisticated and complex elements foreign to their nature such as unusual harmonies and wide intervallic leaps. Accents on weak beats and syncopated rhythms evidence more refinement than is expected from simple country music. Yet a few brief moments of contemplation interrupt the frivolity. 
bringing with them nostalgic longing for the serenity of pristine nature. These brief reveries are soon dispelled as the riotous clamor of the cosmopolitan walls races madly to its end. After the first rehearsal of this movement for its Cologne premiere, Mahler wrote to Alma, anticipating his audience's reaction to this dizzying music. The scherzo, he said, is the very devil of a movement. I see it is in for a peck of troubles. Conductors for the next 50 years will take it too fast and make nonsense out of it. And the public, oh heavens, what are they to make of this chaos out of which a world keeps being born, only to fall apart again at once? These primeval jungle sounds, this rushing, roaring, raging sea, these dancing stars, these breathtaking, scintillating, flashing waves. What has a flock of sheep to say but ba? to the Bruderspaaren Wettgesang, the singing contest of brotherly spheres. Oh, that I might give my symphony its first performance fifty years after my death. How prophetic he was. Not only is the polyphonic texture of this movement extraordinarily complex, but its structure is also very elaborate and complicated. Within the context of scherzo and trio form, Mahler adds a second trio, as he did in the scherzo movements of the second and fourth symphonies, and incorporates elements of sonata and rondo into the various sections in a remarkably innovative manner. The absence of symmetry or regularity in the overall shape of the movement is consistent with the impression it makes of wildly disoriented confusion. The scherzo section proper contains two subjects and a host of motivic elements, as does each of the two trios, Although the movement can be analyzed in such a way as to differentiate between scherzo and trio sections, the subjects of each section become so interwoven as to make it difficult to tell them apart. Elements of sonata form appear in sections devoted to developing various themes. A three-note anapestic figure on the horn with which the movement begins is a principal motto. Its periodic reprise gives the movement a rondo-like character. It sounds like a rather flippant military signal, appearing nonchalantly but forcefully to wave aside the tortuous part one. Notice how strange its falling augmented sixth sounds after the rising major third. We'll call this three-note figure motive one. It will return in the burlesque movement of the ninth symphony. Other principal motives are also on display a rising phrase that rushes upward hastily as if opposing the horn call, which we'll refer to as motive two. The conjunction of motives one and two will return to hail the reprise of the scherzo section each time it reappears. An obligato horn then begins the first subject with a splendid theme. We'll call it theme A. It is a jaunty tune that contains a circular phrase that will be important in both this movement and the finale. A light-hearted counter-theme, based upon motive two, emerges in clarinets and bassoons, overlapping with the horn theme, which continues in flutes and oboes. Accents on weak beats give the theme a sophisticated quality that contrasts with its frolicking character.
Violins then present the second theme, theme B, a gay lendler that contains motive Z from the first movement, shifted to the middle of the bar, and a variant of motive one from the opening horn signal. It is played against the horn theme from the first subject, theme A, which starts together with the violins on a three-note upbeat, but then diverges from them. Cheerful, yodel-like figures in violins combine with motive one in two horns and theme A in bass instruments. After a brief extension of this theme in the strings against a contrapuntal variant of its counter-theme, the first part of the scherzo concludes on a delicately wrought diminuendo that reaches a full cadence. Violas open the B section with a gruff intrusion of running eighth notes that sounds like a bustling and boisterous version of the opening storm music from Act I of Die Walküre. This same figuration will serve later as contrapuntal material in a fugetto treatment of the B section's theme. Clarinets enter with a rat-a-tat staccato phrase blurted out forcefully. It contains a hint of descending chromatics that gives its fanfare-like opening figure a demonic character. Violins take up the Lendler theme, theme B, juxtaposed against theme A in bassoons and low strings. Notice how rhythmic connections between these two themes make them easy to integrate or get lost in each other. Flutes play a variant of theme B as the key shifts to the minor. Against this thematic variant, two other flutes and an oboe assert a rising dotted rhythmic figure, we'll call motive three, alongside motive Z and elements of theme A. Already the integration of thematic and motivic material is considerable, and yet each element is clearly distinguishable in Mahler's brilliantly conceived orchestration. The music seems light as a feather, sounding much like the ballet music of Delib. In cross rhythms, two phrases from Kintototenlieder are set against each other. A flitting variant of the motive sung to the words Der Tagesschern in the fourth song, played by violins, and a fragment of the main theme from the final song in the cellos and basses. But here they both sound frivolous rather than hopeful in the case of the fourth song, or serious as in the fifth. Let's hear the excerpts from the fourth song of Leader first, and then from the fifth song of that song cycle. 
Here is the passage from the Scherzo movement. The B section's busy string figuration re-enters just as this light-hearted contrapuntal melange concludes on a full cadence. Trumpets, bassoons, and low strings sputter out the same staccato phrase that followed this segment when it first appeared. Entrances are always canonic or quasi-fugal, creating a dizzying whirl. Just as waltz theme A enters in trombones and tubas, violins shunt it aside in favor of the Lendler. Yet the second part of the waltz still sneaks in on the cellos and basses, and soon thereafter in the horns, before the Lendler is finished. Here is the passage, starting with the reprise of the B section. Notice how both the Walls theme A and the Lendler theme B have the same three-note upbeat. Variations of the Lendler theme return for further development by clarinets against a revised version of Motive II's dotted rhythms in the flutes and oboe, and their inversion in the first trumpet. Motive II is further extended and combined with elements of theme A in woodwinds, a wash in swirling string figuration. Suddenly, a rising variant of the opening horn signal interrupts the wild gaiety and ushers in the first trio. At a more relaxed pace, and in the contrasting key of B-flat major, violins enter softly, seeming to caress a new waltz theme. It has a hesitating quality that is typically Viennese. Recall the way that the Lendler theme of the Fourth Symphony's first movement teasingly hesitates when it returns at the end of the movement. Yet this new theme emphasizes skip-step rhythms more characteristic of a Lendler than a waltz. The same rhythms actually appear in the Lendler theme itself. This rhythmic material will take on motivic significance as the movement progresses. As the texture thins out, the solo oboe and second violins softly play a lyrically flowing countersubject as the first violins develop the waltz theme. When both subjects are set against each other, the smoothness of the countersubject seems more waltz-like than the clip-dotted rhythms of the Lendler theme. (laughs) ¶¶ 
Without even a hint of warning or expectation, Trio 1 is abruptly halted by the rude intrusion of the opening horn signal, motives 1 and 2. Now it is brusquely stated by a trumpet. Just as unexpectedly, the trio section returns in the home key, as if caught up in a round dance. Thematic material from the A section is further developed and contrasted briefly, making use of a variety of motives, principally the dotted rhythmic motive 3. As before, increasingly contrapuntal treatment of A section subjects is interrupted by the entrance of rapid string figuration from section B, now marked Wild, Wild. This bustling figuration is treated fugally, each entrance diving in willfully on successively lower strings. As the tonality shifts to F minor, fragments from B section themes are bandied about in various woodwinds and brass, with a bit of the lyrical waltz theme from Trio 1 thrown in for good measure in the English horn and trumpet. A tattoo like trumpet figure, motive 4, strikes out against the energetic string figuration and continues to play an important role as an antagonist against the rising minor seconds of the lyrical waltz theme. That waltz theme recurs during the remainder of the section. Again without warning, the mood lightens, the dynamic level quiets down, and the tempo eases. Somehow we have wandered into Trio 2, but not for long. Woodwinds assert the trio's Lendler theme, which gets caught up with Motive 1 in the brass and parts of Theme A in strings. Then a rising variation of Motive 1 seems to do battle against the original motive. All of these elements are pressed into service in a whirlwind of mindless frivolity. As these motives fall upon and merge with each other, the tempo presses forward until a variant of motive one blasts out in the trumpet. A huge multi-octave D chord weighs down upon this motive in woodwinds and tremolo strings. Let's start our next musical excerpt from the sudden intrusion of the second trio.
horns bellow out a sequence of repeated F-naturals in echo-like entrances, as if we were being shoved from one part of the dance floor to the other. Horns seem to ask, which way do we go next? Out of these overlapping F-naturals, an obligato horn enters on the same note, extending it into a few bars on the lyrical waltz theme of Trio 1, now played slowly. It seems that amidst the senseless spin of the waltz subject, nostalgic longing for the solitude and peace of nature and its simple pleasures invades the spirit. A fragment of the countervailing waltz theme with which Trio 1 began is played gently and hesitatingly for a few bars, its clip-dotted rhythms sounding awkward at such a slow tempo. This passage is repeated, giving it greater emphasis as the obligato horn continues its daydreaming. A chamber ensemble follows with a fragment from Trio One's skip-step waltz theme. Has the riotous whirl of life come to its senses? Will it at last give way to the natural innocence of the Lendler? Notice that the Lendler theme itself does not appear in this meditative interlude. It is the frivolous waltz only that takes this introspective turn. For it alone needs to recognize that its constant motion without goal or respite is sheer nonsense. As the segment closes, the obligato horn slows down on the waltz theme and stops in midstream, unsure of where to go next. In the section that follows, Mahler develops thematic material from both trios. He begins by shifting the tonality to D minor for a veiled, pizzicato treatment of themes from Trio II, played quietly and hesitatingly, as if in the shadows. Mahler had already included a pizzicato variation in the scherzo movement of the second symphony. The combination of the use of pizzicato and a more moderate pace gives the trumpet tattoo and the lyrical waltz theme a veiled spectral quality that seems to subvert their original extrovert character. First violins reintroduce the skip-step dance theme that opened Trio One, now with strong accentuation. Shyly, an oboe manages a few bars of Trio Two's principal theme 
set against a pizzicato wall speed. As the key shifts to A-flat, the lyrical waltz theme, which was initially counterposed with the principal theme, enters in a clarinet, played legato as before. As the tempo becomes more fleeting, violins dreamily muse upon the waltz theme against a contrasting subject in the obligato horn that seems to fit right into it. This theme is further developed first in violins and horn, and then shifted around the woodwinds as the violin line continues. The music seems to be lost in the same reverie that the meditative obligato horn had conjured up before this development section began. A slowly descending chromatic figure in accented quarter notes on two bassoons seems to mimic the lyrical waltz tune, which continues dreamily above it on an oboe. Horns briefly take up the waltz theme. As if in a trance, a trumpet moons over this theme, widening its intervals. The obligato horn takes it up, second violins add the trumpet tattoo figure in pizzicato, and bassoons bring back the main theme of Trio One in a strident staccato rendition. The first flute has a turn at the lyrical waltz theme, and then a trombone pompously intrudes with the scherzo's first theme. Two horns try to recall the nostalgic song of the obligato horn, while bassoons play the waltz theme of Trio One, sharpened with pizzicato punctuation. Clarinets insert two measures of the scherzo section's waltz theme. After the first flute plays the waltz theme, a trombone sounds the Lendler theme. All this confused thematic and motivic interplay is presented in little snippets by a chamber ensemble. Not a single element is lost in Mahler's transparent texture.
But the memory of the obligato horn's musings on the lyrical waltz theme is too strong to be forgotten, and it returns, reinforced by additional horns, contrabassoon, and low strings. When the obligato horn begins to slow down, appearing to succumb to nostalgic reverie, the music stops before reaching a cadence, just as it did before. After a pause, just as the horn starts to continue its musings, the pizzicato trio returns, now in F minor, its veiled harmonies producing an impressionistic quality. But instead of the trio one theme being itself played in staccato as before, it enters quietly and with a little lift in first violins. But now it is played legato rather than staccato. It gradually becomes livelier, working its way back into its original tempo. A descending four-note figure, actually the trumpet tattoo in disguise, enters rudely in the brass, trying to cast aside the nostalgic dream world. It succeeds in bringing back the Fugetto string figuration from the scherzo section, combined with the waltz theme from Trio One, now played vigorously and at full strength by woodwinds and violins. A dashing phrase from that theme keeps repeating furiously in an attempt to recreate the maddening world that gave rise to memories of a more peaceful and innocent time. Trombones staunchly assert the first measure of Trio One's main theme, ushering in a wild stretto section during which the two principal themes from the A section are juxtaposed in the brass with string-based support. Trumpets add their rat-a-tat figure from the B section, made even more striking by being doubled on a woodblock. As this dizzying music builds, it is suddenly blown away by the opening horn motives, thereby bringing us full circle to the beginning of the movement. In the reprise of the scherzo subject that follows, set in the home key of D, Mahler varies the principal musical elements slightly, changing their instrumentation, 
while presenting them in increasingly frenetic profusion. During the formal return of the opening sequence of motives one and two and theme A, the Delibian ballet music reappears, ornamented by descending staccato string runs, while oboes and clarinets hint at Trio One's waltz theme. The Lendler theme misses its cue, and in its stead, violas break in with the Vugetto string figuration of the B section, set against the ratatat motive in woodwinds. Strings enter sheepishly with the Lendler theme, as if still somewhat unsure of where it belongs. They follow with the minor key variant of that theme that was played earlier by the flutes, while the flutes and oboes return with a rising dotted rhythmic figure that sounded like an impish horn call when it appeared toward the beginning of the movement. Instead of bringing back the B section with its scurrying Fugetto figuration, Mahler presents a slightly altered version of the swirling string sixteenths that previously ended the scherzo section. This time, the opening horn call motto, motive one, does not in interrupt the proceedings as before. Instead, cascading string scales played against the Lendler theme in woodwinds run right into the reprise of Trio One. Now Trio One's waltz theme loses itself completely in the increasing frenzy. Violins mercilessly drive the tempo forward against the Lendler theme, as if trying to expel it from the scene. Soon the waltz loses control and runs riot on increasingly rapid double-noted figuration for the full orchestra that climbs to dizzying heights until the Fugetto string figuration suddenly diverts the music into a reprise of Trio 2. music no longer appears as introverted as when first heard. Brass take hold of it stridently with heavy accents and wide intervallic leaps to the accompaniment of the string fugetto that scampers along mindlessly. The Libyan ballet music joins in when the key shifts to F minor, along with fragments of the trumpet fanfare first heard as part of Trio II. In what appears to be complete disarray, all of these elements wind in and out of the musical fabric, threatening to tear it to shreds. Unexpectedly, Mahler shifts gears, radically changing the mood. As the tempo eases up noticeably, dynamic levels soften, the tonality shifts to the dominant minor, and the music calms down for a brief respite. The yodel figure from the Lendler theme counters Trio II's waltz theme. Brass and bassoons take over on the walls, driven on relentlessly by the Fugetto string figuration. Without the slightest hesitation, 
the Lendler theme jumps back in vigorously, if slightly off balance, beginning on the wrong beat, to meet head-on the Mighty Walls theme from Trio 2. The tonality brightens to G major for their ultimate confrontation. As fragments of the two themes battle each other without mercy, it becomes increasingly difficult to tell one theme from another. Horns use the Walls theme to try to blast away the Lendler with the trumpet's rat-a-tat figure, and then with motive one. With even greater vigor, the tempo presses forward into a stretto on the principal subjects of the A and B sections in G minor. At the height of pandemonium, the, ho the opening horn call rings out and the section ends in a flurry of descending chromatics in flutes and violins. Another breath pause, and Trio 1 reappears in the home key of the scherzo section, D major. Soon the scherzo begins rather meekly with its principal waltz theme in two horns, set against the opening horn call, motive 1, in low strings. After only four measures, the instrumentation is flip-flopped so that low strings have the waltz theme and woodwinds the horn call motive, the horns dropping out entirely. This segment lasts for only three measures, and the Fugetto figuration re-enters in low strings, shifting to violas, while first violins play a variation on elements from both the waltz and the Lenner themes, accompanied by motive one in the cellos. All of these constantly reshuffled musical elements are played softly by a chamber group that functions like a string quartet. Suddenly their progress is interrupted, as the string figuration takes complete charge. It begins to build, rising sequentially for a few measures, until muted trumpets enter with the first bar of the waltz theme. The waltz's dotted rhythm becomes a motivic figure, often played in relentless repetition against motive one in low strings. Then the fugetto string figuration jumps in as the music continues to build on a fragment of the Lendler theme, whose intervallic placement orients it toward motive one. By now, the entire orchestra has come together to urge the music forward. Even a glockenspiel joins in, adding a note of merriment. When the music reaches a strong climax on an A minor diminished seventh chord, four horns ring out in unison the seventh note with bells up and with all of their might in syncopated repetitions. This passage recalls the staggered Fs that halted an earlier effort to build to a climax during the trio and were sounded forcefully by horns. 
Out of the enormous welter of sound, the obligato horn arises, bellowing out the last of its G naturals. The orchestra gives way for a few measures as the horn tries to recapture the serenity of its earlier nostalgic reverie. After only a few measures of gentle musing on the trio two waltz, the fugetto, as if angered by the horns having interrupted the wild merriment, blasts its way in on the same huge seventh chord in the full orchestra, heard only moments ago. Over this outburst, horns ring out on rising fourths, trying once again to halt the orchestral onslaught. They succeed for a moment as the wild figuration stops short, and the obligato horn resumes its trio two waltz theme somewhat hastily and quite briefly. The fugetto jumps in again, though less forcefully than before, but quiets down quickly as the tempo slows to a crawl for a few more bars of the bemused obligato horn music, here extended on a solo trombone. This alternating pattern continues with the horn asserting itself only to be swept aside by the fugetto. Just when it seems that the horn may have gotten the upper hand, it stops in the middle of a phrase, as it had done twice already. After the music stops for a moment, another momentary flashback to the Trio 2's pizzicato provides a vehicle for the obligato horn to continue its musings on the trio's lyrical waltz tune. But this, too, soon peters out. The horn, apparently exhausted by its efforts to stave off the maddening tumult that keeps engulfing it. After the lyrical waltz theme sinks into the bass, resting on a full cadence, the bass drum quietly but aggressively begins to tap out the rat-a-tat trumpet figure. Thus we have reached the coda. The fugetto string figuration enters softly, as if stalking its prey. Then suddenly, as if an apparent assurance of victory, it bursts out wildly, launching its final assault. Trio One's waltz leads the charge on relentless repetitions of its dotted rhythms, over increasingly urgent and emphatic string figuration. In the midst of this madness, the opening horn call motto, Motive One, 
enters impetuously in winds and is repeated endlessly as if whirling around the dance floor with the waltz motto. Horns add motive two to the fray. Soon the music becomes so frenzied that complete chaos threatens. A fragment of the Lendler theme from the scherzo section joins the maddening world, pressing forward against a chromatic variant of Trio II's lyrical theme in the horns, laced with the trumpet fanfare. These figures bombard each other with constant repetitions as the battle rages on. Finally, Motive One takes over, clearing the way for the horns to proudly announce victory with the main theme of the scherzo section. As they hold on to their last A natural, the movement ends with two sharp outbursts of Motive One, the very music with which this frivolous pastiche began. It is as if we were about to start yet another go-round, which we are fortunately spared by a sudden cutoff. After nearly 20 minutes of this delirious whirlwind, Mahler has certainly made his point. It is time to catch our breath from the wild caricature of modern life before moving on to more serious business. <laughs> 